0: You know, right now, it's important for us to be careful mm-hmm. and uh, show that we know how to do uh, complicated development in a quick manner. And I think uh, we're experts in the world at doing this, by the way.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power
2: Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Maradian. as we head into the Air and Space Forces Association's Warfare Symposium. Next week in Denver, we'll hear from Dave Alexander of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems about the company's new drone that can be launched from other drones, another new system it's going to be unveiling, and the service's signature collaborative combat aircraft effort, and John Turpak of Air and Space Forces Magazine on what to expect to hear from service leaders and this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE.
1: The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn
2: more at geaerospace.com XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Bell, Leonardo D.R.S. and American Rheinmetall. And a quick program note, we will have an extra air power podcast next week.
1: You won't want to miss at the Warfare Symposium on Monday. The chief of staff of the United States Air Force, General Dave Alvin, will make a major announcement about reorienting the Air Force for great power competition. He'll be our guest on a special episode right after the announcement to explain why and the what that will shape the future force. You'll find that discussion on your podcast apps right after he speaks. So listen to the speech and then find out the details behind it right here. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, as we began to record this podcast, news broke of the search for a missing CH-53 based out of Miramar with five Marines aboard. We have subsequently learned that the crew has perished in the accident. Our thoughts go out to their families, teammates, and loved ones. In other news, Boeing's T-7 trainer, which was supposed to start low-rate initial production about now, is being delayed by several months due to faulty parts. It's not a single-point failure. It's several different parts from a variety of suppliers. Korean aerospace Industries' KF-21 Boramae has started serial production, with 40 jets projected for delivery this year. That's going from a standing start to a full sprint pretty fast. India is acquiring 31 MQ-9B Sky Guardian UAVs for about $4 billion. Dave Alexander may have more to say about that later in the show. And DOD's Office of Operational Test and Evaluation has found the CMV-22, the carrier onboard delivery version of the Osprey, not fit for operational service, which is awkward because the Navy declared that tilt rotor operational two years ago. As a practical matter, it doesn't have much effect because the V-22 fleet is already grounded for other reasons. But in other V-22 news, a Pentagon official has announced that the cause of the most recent V-22 accident off of Japan has now been identified. They did not say what the
2: cause was or whether it was related to other recent V-22 incidents. Bago, It's certainly a very full news week. Certainly our thoughts and prayers go out to The crew of that 53, and we certainly hope for the best outcome now that the aircraft has been found. The T-7, we're certainly going to hear more about that when we're in Denver, obviously, because this airplane is to replace the legendary and venerable uh, T-38 Talon. And there are availability issues with that airplane and a concern that it's interfering with the service's ability to train pilots at this point. So the sooner they get the problems diagnosed with it, the sooner they can get into that low rate production and get into fielding is uh, going to be critical. So tell the audience a little bit about the KAI Boromay, JJ, because it is a very interesting airplane coming at a very interesting time from a very interesting company.
1: It is indeed, because it's more or less in the F-35 class. It's the most advanced fighter that South Korea has ever attempted. It's got stealth characteristics. It's got a general electric engine in the back. But the fascinating thing to me is their production rate. They are looking at doing 40 jets in a year when Dassault, a very experienced fighter company, can at best manage 13 or 14 Rafales. So it's an ambitious goal from a new company. And a company that, frankly, a lot of countries are looking to for advanced concepts when they don't want to afford or don't want to ally with the United States.
2: It's going to be interesting, though, because there are obviously US components in that aircraft, aren't there? So, which ultimately gives Washington some export denial. Not that the United States has been pulling that lever recently, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, the engine is just the beginning with regard to the KF21. The U.S. has not been touching that lever, but let's see who tries to sign up for it and whether that changes depending upon the country that wants to write a contract.
2: And I would say that for Dassault, the whole issue is whether or not they can stretch out production into SCAF, right? I mean, they don't want to end up in one of these disconnect scenarios where they end up running out of rough to build. Although right now, A lot of customers are clamoring to get their aircraft, and Dassault is trying to figure out how they pick up production in order to satisfy their customers. F-35 is in a similar boat uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to accelerate production to meet demand.
1: Right now, Dassault's Rafale to
2: deliver everything that's already been ordered will take 17 years at the current rate. The V-22 issue is an absolutely fascinating issue on a whole variety of fronts, right? First, because Nick Girton who is now the Navy acquisition executive, was the operational test and evaluation boss of the Pentagon. So, you know, they've apparently found fault with a system that he's now overseeing. And it's absolutely critical to revolutionize how the United States Navy supports its ships at sea. Historically, the C-2 Greyhound, and everybody knows that I'm a big C-2 fan would ferry cargo to the carrier. You would then break it down and put it on helicopters to distribute it, whereas the Navy is going to the CMV-22 in order to be able to fly cargo wherever it needs in the fleet without necessarily being tied to a carrier deck for an uh, unarrested landing, even if uh, DVs now, distinguished visitors, don't get their tailhook certificate, (laughs) right, which was something obviously very important. I do think it's going to be interesting to see what happened with, the accident. My understanding is there was an indication when the airplane was flying, uh, it tried to land, getting landing clearance in Japan can be a little bit of a challenge. And I'm told that might've been a complicating factor, which meant that the airplane might not have been able to land as quickly as it wanted to land uh, or needed to land. Uh, and certainly will be interesting. My, my understanding is, you know, it wasn't a hard clutch issue. It wasn't, you know, anything particularly odd about this, but certainly we'll hopefully hear more uh, as well from the Air Force because the airplane that went down uh, was a U.S. Air Force special operations aircraft. But the V-22 is critical for the Marine Corps and how it operates worldwide. It's increasingly important to the United States Navy uh, and certainly in the Indo-Pacific, an important capability for the Air Force. So we look forward to it getting resolution and getting the airplane cleared and back into service. That's particularly true, as you were saying, for
1: the CMV-22, the Navy variant. And the issue for which it was found operationally unsuitable is primarily the way it handles ice. I'm not aware that that's been involved in any particular issues with V-22s so far, but that is why it received the decertification of fitness for operational service. As you know, in the long run, that's something the service can work around. Literally, as we were pushing publish on this episode of the Air Power podcast, we received word of a major shakeup from the Army in their procurement plans, including ending the future armed reconnaissance aircraft program, the forthcoming portion of the future vertical lift program. They will be continuing with the future long-range assault aircraft. Also, the Army ending investment in the UH-60V, with more money going into the UH-60M, more money going into the Block II Chinook, and phasing out the Shadow and Raven unmanned aircraft, as well as delaying introduction of the ITAP, the Improved Turbine Engine. Big news, and I'm sure there will be more to say about this in the days ahead.
2: And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome to the program now, Dave Alexander, the President of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sir, welcome back to the AirPower Podcast. It's always a pleasure having you on the program.
0: Thank you, Buck. It's good to be here, and uh, always good to hear your voice. We look forward to the discussion.
2: Very excited by it. There's a lot of talk about General Atomics, and uh, we're going to try to get through all of it, JJ and I. But first, I want to start with something that is really new. You guys recently announced that something had happened in November, which was the demonstration of your new advanced air launch effects UAV. JJ was pointing out that it really does need a better name. I think I'm going to endorse him on that, and uh, maybe you guys can figure out something really cool over a bottle of wine. It's a small drone that's deployable from combat aircraft and even other UAVs. What can you tell us about its range and the kind of payloads we should expect to see? Because there is some interest about a, a drone from a drone that can also deploy effects, to put it mildly.
0: You know, we recently got into this as part of new missions in our existing platforms. And, you know, with long-range sensing and standoff survivability and contested and denied environments... This gives you the ability to not only stand off in sense, but also to have advanced air launch, smaller vehicles that are carried by the larger unmanned aircrafts go in there and penetrate and do missions, if you will, by penetrating into the IADs. So, you know, that's really what got us started on it. We weren't really going there just to start building small UASs, but it was more of a do this for missions for the larger unmanned aircraft. But it has turned into a life of its own. And by doing so, we have to be different. We have to be very affordable and it has to be uh, adaptable. And so we had really looked hard and teamed up with the automotive company, Divergent, that does a lot of additive manufacturing, very unique, where you can take smaller pieces of a frame and they are assembled together into a larger airframe, if you will. And through that, we have really discovered what I think is a way to change the cost profile of these, which, you know, they're treated. It's a one-way mission. So the lower you can get the vehicle costs, the more you can spend on the payload that it carries in. Now, the payload it carries in can do all kinds of things. And the missions, we can't really talk about. But, you know, they're stand-in missions that can do electronic warfare. They can do kinetics, you name it. And right now, you know, the focus is this air launch effect vehicle is more of a truck, if you will that can be adapted and reprinted as needed to carry whatever payload that goes downrange. So standoff, launch the small, small goes deep. And we really think that combo with persistent long endurance that can carry these smalls and then launch when you need is, is really a powerful new capability that we can offer to the warfighter. You know, 3D printing airframes and getting them out there, you can go quick, you can build them quick, you can be flexible and you can get the cost of the airframe down such that I think the real important thing here is so you can spend, you know, what you need to on on the payload. And, you know, in the past, some of these more exquisite smalls, um, nobody wants to throw away that much money. But if we can get the cost down, I think you've really got a new mission for everybody.
1: Well, that's fascinating because in the materials you released on the A2LE, it was shown being deployed from a General Atomics Avenger. So there was the sense that the Avenger is the large platform and the A2LE is the expendable small. You're saying that it is a truck itself and will carry other things forward?
0: Yeah, it's like a truck with a truck, if you will. But yes, I mean, that's the idea. And, it, you know, the Avenger was, is a test platform that we have two of those aircraft available for doing a lot of the Skyborg autonomy testing that we've been doing. And that platform is cleared to launch several different class of weapons and Smalls, as you saw in that video, but it doesn't have, it could be there. It could be a MQ-9 class medium altitude aircraft. It could be a fighter jet. It could be any platform capable of air launching uh, these types of vehicles. So, you know, you, you can imagine a high value airborne asset, big fixed wing airplane that could carry hundreds of these things and launch them out as well. And they could swarm and go do their thing. So it was more for us to bring this penetrating mission to a standoff platform. But now we're finding out with this capability of uh, additive manufacturing combined with our aerospace capabilities, so automotive coming to the aerospace, I really think we have something unique to offer there.
1: And I know Vago wants to get to another system, but in just a moment, is this part of your concept behind the collaborative combat aircraft that this will be well, a subsystem for whatever CCA goes forward?
0: That's a good point. And uh, like I say, uh, A CCA could carry air-launched effects as well. So, absolutely. The point is that anytime you want to penetrate deep with something cheap, something attritable but capable, I think is what we're shooting for. So it could be carried on a C-130. It could be carried on a CCA, MQ-9, Gray Eagle, MQ-1C. These are all capable missions. So it could be manned aircraft, unmanned aircraft.
2: And Dave, congratulations. You guys released some information on OBSS today. Obviously, a year ago, you guys were contracted by the Air Force Research Lab to develop the offboard sensing station aircraft. That's now a matter of record, so folks should go to the General Atomics Aeronautical Systems website to see some great video on that, as well as learn a little bit more about it. Talk to us a little bit about OBSS, but also how it kind of ties into the broader collaborative combat aircraft and all the other work you guys are doing.
0: First off, we're super excited to have the OBSS program right now, especially, you know, the engineers and the flight line people are just totally energized to have a new platform out there. And so we uh, thank AFRL for that opportunity to uh, bring this platform. I think the main goal was to show how we could take OBSS and uh, make it more affordable. In essence, bring down the uh, cost per pound of that platform while meeting mission goals that are typical of a combat aircraft, which is higher altitude, flying fast, and range. So we're super excited, and we're through high-speed taxi. Right now, we're getting ready to fly. can't say exactly, but it'll be soon. We'll be uh, looking forward for the day we can share the video of the first flight. Well, as
2: you've always said, if you're going to do a high-speed taxi, you better be ready for a first flight because you may get it whether you want it or not.
0: That's right. And uh, we were ready, (laughs) but... uh, there's a few tweaks that we'd like to make, and uh, you know, right now it's important for us to be careful mm-hmm. and uh, show that we know how to do uh, complicated development in a quick manner. And I think uh, we're experts in the world at doing this. By the way, a low-cost airframe. How we can work towards showing that we can do a clean-sheet design within a, a time frame and change it as needed. You know, we've got a top-notch team. And uh, it's these kind of projects that keep them very interested. So the challenges for OBSS was to, you know, carry the load, meet the speed and meet the range at the same time get the cost down so it could be incredible. And it's not a 60, 100,000 hour aircraft, you know, lower end type of life. So don't design a too much in for being out in the field forever. Does it have an X designation at this point? It does, it's a XQ 67A. So very cool. You know you've arrived when you got the designator, right? <laughs>
1: okay, but let's combine a couple of the things you've been talking about because when we were talking yeah. A2LE, you mentioned 3D printing and advanced manufacturing concepts. And yeah. with offboard sensing station, you're talking about low lifetime aircraft and therefore cycling, making new ones to replace them. Yeah. The last time we talked, DOD's replicator initiative was still very new and undefined. Have you seen it evolve and has it become a significant program or target for general atomics?
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, replicators focus on not reinventing the wheel, if you will, and identifying existing technologies that you could field fast. You know, that kind of defines our company. That's what we do. We invent things through new integration of existing things, you know, and that's how we've been successful uh, through the years. through a lot of system reuse for everything we build in-house. Always make sure you've got reliable propulsion and uh, reliable sensors. Taking existing technologies, even like an MQ9, and giving it a new mission. To me, that's what our company's all about. So yeah, you know, I think it's it fits into that. It fits into a lot of the air launch effects that we talked about. You know, we've got A2LE that we discussed earlier, and then Eaglet, and we've got a couple others in work. You know, I think as this evolves, some of the other projects we already have going would kind of fit right into that replicator model, if you will, already. So we feel like we're already part of it through the things we're we're doing and have ongoing as we speak.
1: I just want to follow up one thing on CCA, because with five different companies working the problem, Can you tell us, have they been assigned particular missions or size of aircraft, or is it more about each company developing the best technology they can, and then something will be selected out of that pool?
0: Well, I can just talk in generalities, but yeah, there's there's definitely crystal clear missions, crystal clear requirements. And um, I can't speak for the other four, but physics is going to drive us all into something very similar, I think. When they give you a range and they give you an altitude and they give you a speed and so on, that requires airframes to be designed for those, what we would call a point design. And to meet that point design, things start looking the same. I would expect them to be very similar, I guess, is what I'm saying across the five.
1: But if I understand, you're all designing to the same requirement. It's not that company A has been told, go work on this.
0: Company B has been told, work on that. No, yeah, it's all the same requirement. You know, there's some interpretation in some pieces of it that may end up, you know, with some slightly different offerings, perhaps in the systems, sensors, and payloads. But airframe wise, I think it's pretty straightforward. But it is a whole system here, they're offering it's not just the platform. So there is a payload package that goes with it. And that payload package could be different from one offering to the other. But the mission that that payload package performs is the same for all five.
2: You mentioned requirements, and next week we are going to learn more about the Air Force's reorganization or reoptimization, how the service is uh, calling it, yeah. uh, to better position itself for great power competition. A, a lot of talk about the recreation of uh, something like the Aeronautical Systems Center to have a little bit better control over requirements and integration across platforms. We'll clearly hear more about that next week. Uh, I know that you and a lot of other people in industry have been talking to the Air Force in this process. From what you can tell us now, what is the impact that that reorganization is likely to have on contractors and how industry does business with the department?
0: You know, I really applaud Secretary Kendall for thinking outside the box and let's start doing something different and let's move quicker. And and so I think that's going to be a breath of fresh air. And so we're looking forward to it. You know, I would say um, we're all in, whatever they come up with. I mean, just to put it in perspective, I've been working with the Air Force for 28 years on unmanned platforms, starting with MQ-1, right? I've seen the Air Force go from big safari days, right, to a transition to normalize, but don't slow down, and to where we're at today, which is not a whole lot of development, but a lot of sustainment. So you take that time frame, and then you put the you know the U.S. Army program on top of that, and you put other uh, U.S. customers that we have on top of that. And every customer is different, so we'll have no problem adapting to exactly whatever they want to do. And they're, they're already, in my opinion, streamlining the activity on the CCA program. What I've seen there is just really, really good. And how they've been, how we're sharing data, and we've opened up our digital engineering and everything and information. To the customer, they sit right with us. So the CCA program is, you know, off to a really, really awesome start, in my opinion. If they continue that way, we're going to we're going to get something to the warfighter quick. We're open for change. We have to change with every customer we have, and we have to change when the customer changes. And so it won't really affect us. We'll be right there with Secretary Kendall and reorganize and and align with with his vision. And we're already hit the bricks running on the CCA program, and it is streamlined. Right now, today, it's going well. And if you think about it, they're doing that times five. So you really got to sloop everybody right now because um, customers are really working hard to deal with five different primes.
2: Very quickly, last question, because you've been very generous with your time. India just placed a $4 billion order for 31 MQ9Bs. So congratulations for that. And bring the audience up to speed on the entire MQ-9 enterprise and where that sort of stands and how this plays into it, because the Marine Corps is acquiring aircraft. You guys are delivering to India. And for some, they think Predator Reaper sort of stopped a couple of years ago, and you guys have kept going with that, continuing to develop payloads for for both U.S. and international customers. Give us an update. As you know,
0: the MQ-9A program, which
2: originally started off, uh, with Big Safari and then
0: uh, and the U.S. Air Force. It's just been a phenomenally successful program. We are on our last lot right now on the production line, and when we are done with that, we'll have built and delivered 575 MQ-9As, uh, and seventy five 9 as to warfighters. That's across uh, DOD and uh, international. You know, international included uh, UK, France, Spain, Netherlands, Italy. If I'm forgetting the country, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's been a very successful program. So MQ-9B is a bigger MQ-9. It's a next generation. It's a, a higher gross takeoff platform. It's got bigger wings. It's got built-in long-range SIGINT sensors. It's got lightning protection and ice. It's got a sense and avoid system that will allow it to fly in international airspace so that where you don't have radar coverage, you can fly over blue water. And so MQ-9B will be the airplane in the future that files and flies. It's, it's a matter of time. We're, we're almost there. And uh, so that has taken off from the protective program with the UK. That has taken off to Belgium. See, we just got under contract with Canada. Taiwan is under contract, very close with UAE. We're very close with some other Middle East countries. India now has announced. So this MQ-9 Bravo is going to repeat what MQ-9 Alpha did. It's the next generation of MQ-9. And it's really its big mission. It can do all the missions that MQ-9A did, but it's going to be able to do, um, most notably, a maritime mission. MQ-9 Bravo holds our company record now for endurance of uh, 48.2 hours of flight without refueling. So we we can measure that airplane in days endurance. Huge investment by the Blue family to get us to where we're at. And it's really going to set the company up for a foundation, uh, which is our core business, where our capitalization, everything of production and sustainment, you know, for the next 40 years. And allow us to um, tackle now things like these, you know, UCAB airplanes that we're working on now.
1: A man with a lot going on, Dave Alexander, the president of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems.
0: Good of you to be with us on the Air Power podcast. Thank you. Nice talking to you guys.
1: And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. CAVAS Ships, hosted by Chris CAVAS and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards.
2: And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome to the program a very old friend and one of the best aerospace and defense reporters on the planet, John Turpak, the editorial director of Air and Space Forces Magazine, who has more than a casual relationship with the Air and Space Forces Association that next week will be convening, the Warfare Symposium, always a highlight of the calendar, this year, not in Orlando, but again, in sunny Denver. John, thanks so very much for joining us and welcome back to the Air Power Podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. You have covered the Air Force more closely than anybody I know for longer than anybody I know without dating you at all. And you've been keeping a very close eye on the reorganization that Secretary Kendall launched at the Air Force Association's airspace cyber symposium last year with a pretty firm goal of trying to put a plan together by Denver where it would be rolled out. And that appears to be the case. What do you expect to be hearing from leadership over the two and a half days, two days or three days, depending on how you do the math at the Gaylord out in Denver or Aurora? Well, I think, of course, the big
3: news is going to be uh, the rollout of what Kendall has been calling the re-optimization of the Air Force, which we hear is going to involve some uh, changes to the major commands, changes for the way the acquisition system is set up and grouping together things to be more efficient in order to get them into the fight faster and more effectively.
1: John, if that's indeed the message, how well do you think they've identified the problems? Because they've come up with a lot of solutions, but are they solutions to the right issues? Or does trying to refocus the service while it's very busy around the world distract from the rest of the mission?
3: Well, I think the problems have been admired for a long time, and Kendall would very much like to get this accomplished before the end of his term, if that's going to be this year. When he rolled out this initiative in September, he said he'd been thinking about it for a long time as he travels the Air Force and as he works with it. So uh, I think he's very serious about it. But of course, the pitfall is a lot of people have to sign off. Congress has to agree and the rank and file have to kind of go along with it. So uh, I think we'll probably get the broad outlines, maybe not too much in the details, and that's where the devil is.
2: You know, without putting the cart before the horse, right, Dave Alvin also was strategy chief of the Air Force under General Welsh uh, when General Welsh was the chief, right? And and many people have talked about the importance of doing this, including Dave Deptula, the dean of the Mitchell Institute, you know, decades ago was talking about doing this and not to invoke a great name from the past, a Major General Ron Bath and uh, general deptula had a briefing as i recall more than 20 years ago kind of making this case i think you and i both were at the same briefing by the way john without dating us both when you look at this what's the hardest part going to be you think about selling it you know even if people understand the challenges associated with it because you've covered change and the service for a very long period of time what would be the best way to sell this in your experience would have been the successful things the air force has managed to sell whether on the hill and and within the ranks and what are some lessons that maybe they can take from those experiences in getting a successful rollout
3: i don't know that i've seen a lot of really successful major changes rolled out uh they've all taken a long time they've all taken a lot of uh, refinement and fine tuning i'll give you an example back when Tony McPeak had to restructure the Air Force after the big drawdown in the early 90s. He put the uh, C-130s in with Air Combat Command, and I bet him 20 bucks. you know, within two years you're going to change that and put them in Air Mobility Command. I won the bet. I don't think I got the $20. But, yeah, there's going to be changes. You have to get the people to go along with this, and this is what they've grown up with. This is what they know. And uh, they've structured their careers to follow the pattern that exists. And now you're asking them, okay, you got to change your goals, change your career plans to adapt to this new format. Is it going to work? Well, you have to convince them that this will be far better at uh, ensuring victory than what we had before.
1: And John, what other messages do we expect to hear? Obviously, there's going to be a big focus on the reorientation But that's not all the news that usually gets made at this conference.
3: No, I think you're going to hear. uh, We got a big download on collaborative combat aircraft at our show in September. And we have, I think, five panels on collaborative combat aircraft this time as well. So you're going to see much more on that. That's probably the, the central acquisition program around which everything is going to revolve, I think, for the next few years you'll get some more downloads on uh, acquisition programs cyber and JADZ 2 so there'll be
2: there'll be plenty of news besides how we're going to reorganize the air force you know john i was going to joke that when tony McPeak reorganized the air force he at least redid the uniform, which some people suspect was a strategic effort on his part to distract everybody from a truly generational reorganization of the Air Force. But General Alvin already has made clear he does not want to hear the word uniform spoken anywhere within earshot of him or tape test. <laughs> so he's not going to resort to that kind of distraction, is he? <laughs> Probably wise.
3: <laughs> that, that has also never gone over well when the Air Force is tried to change the uniform
1: john Turpak, editorial director of air and space forces magazine
3: we'll see you at the show and thanks so much see you there
1: thanks so much for joining us on the air power podcast and if you liked what you heard hey tell a friend unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage thanks also to ge aerospace for powering the entire flight we'll be back next week